0: if we look again quickly at Puritanism, we can see that the essence of Puritanism uh, is about making the church strictly biblical. Strictly biblical. And I want to talk for a couple of minutes about some differences in Lutheranism and Presbyterianism. Because they're very significant. Luther philosophy was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, Luther took things that were uh, passed down through church history, views of baptism, views of the Virgin Mary, views of the Lord's Supper, and he tweaked them, but he did not radically alter them. Calvin, on the other hand, basically said, Tradition's helpful, but we're going to start from scratch. We're going to go to the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, then we're scrapping it. That's the essence of Calvinism. And therefore, it's the essence of Presbyterianism. It's the essence of the Low Church of England, which is Calvinistic, the evangelical wing. It's the essence of Congregationalism. And in many ways, it's the essence of Baptists. Remember that Baptists are not Anabaptists. Anabaptists included all kinds of weird people, like King John of Leiden. Uh, these were people who sought to establish Old Testament theocracy with themselves as king, King John of Leiden. Now, there were some very lovely people that come out on the Anabaptist side, people like the Mennonites um, and the Amish. Mennonites are evangelical, who have similarities to the Amish, but are clearly distinct. Amish basically have retained their old German dialect and their austere, strict ways of doing things. Those are Anabaptists. If you go down the street to a Baptist church, or down another street to another Baptist church, or anywhere, Baptists do not come out of the Anabaptist movement. It's very important to understand. The Baptist movement comes out of this history in England, where the Puritans try to reform the Church of England, and some leave it. And among those that leave it are the pilgrims who came to America who retained things like infant baptism and the Baptist who did not retain infant baptism. So the Baptists in their inception in the 1600s are really virtually identical in terms of how they understand salvation with the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Low Church of England, and, and, and with Presbyterians. So there's, that's why Presbyterians love things like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is the, at least in the beginning of my life, was the, most, the second most important book in the English language after the King James Version of the Bible, and his lesser-known book, The War for Mansoul is a very excellent book on understanding demonology and how Satan attacks people. The War for Mansoul. So you have the Baptists, and they are are among the two separatists. The separatists were those who said, we can't reform this stinking thing, we're out of here. And those are the pilgrims. They went to Holland first, then they didn't like their children learning Dutch ways, even though the the Dutch people were Calvinists, and they decided to come to America. Those who worked C, those who worked for change staying in the established church, are the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. And then D, those who accepted the theology of Puritanism without its concerns for worship and church government were the Episcopalians. Now, I want to talk about differences between Martin Luther and John Calvin, because these differences actually are fairly profound. Luther wanted to retain the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper. What is the Roman Catholic uh, understanding of the Lord's Supper? When the priest says these words in Latin, in hoc signo, Winkus. No, wait a minute. That's, that's in this sign, conquer. Wrong Latin phrase. That goes back to Constantine I. Uh, when the priest says the words, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. When those words are said in the Latin mass, they will ring a bell. And that's a reminder. This is really special you want to really pay attention? Because at that moment, when he says, hoc est corpus meum, which sounds like what? Hocus pocus. (laughs) And we get that from that. Because common people who did not understand Latin, and when priests were in a hurry to get through things, would say hocus pocus. So then people said, well, I'm going to say, I'm going to turn you into a frog, Sandy. Uh, Hocus pocus. (laughs) And so, anyhow, in transubstantiation... The bread ceases to be bread, and the wine ceases to be wine. It isn't that at all anymore whatsoever. It's replaced with transubstantiation, like you go from the West Coast to the East Coast. Transubstantiation, transcontinental. The substance of the bread becomes the substance of Christ himself. There is no bread there anymore. Smells like bread, tastes like bread, smells like bread. And Thomas Aquinas used Aristotle and to, to explain this, that it appears under the accidents. That doesn't mean an accident. Like when I was uh, had been admitted to church membership as an unsaved boy at the age of 10, I reached to grab the uh, grape juice, and this lady next to me with her husband uh, I spilled it all over her beautiful white dress. Never forgot that. But anyhow, so it's not... In other words, it's not an accident. It is, it's an Aristotelian term, the philosopher Aristotle, for something having the appearance of something that it really isn't. So when Luther comes along, Luther retains the real corporal, physical presence of Christ. He doesn't define it exactly. The bread is still there, and the wine is still there, but the physical body and blood of Jesus physically is there. Now, here's the question. How can Jesus' body, because Jesus was truly God and truly human in one person, how can Jesus' physical body be present on earth? And here's a A Lutheran doctrine. It's very critical difference between, and is this, does this affect people's salvation? No. But I'm not a Lutheran. And and I'm not a Lutheran because I believe the Bible doesn't teach Lutheranism. So what happens is that the physical body of Christ is present everywhere. How can it possibly be? And this is Luther's doctrine. The communicatio idiomatum. The communicatio idiomatum. How do you spell that? Communicatio idiomatum. You can do it phonetically because I can't do it. Communicatio idiomatum. What Luther taught was that the physical body of Jesus was transformed and, in effect, took on the attributes of his deity, of his divinity. As God, he's present everywhere. As man, he's not. And that sounds weird, but that's part of the paradox of Christianity from its earliest days. True God, true man, and one person. But in Lutheran teaching, the physical body, the human nature of Christ, became in effect divinized or partook of the, the essence of, of the attributes of deity. That's similar to what is found in the Eastern Orthodox churches. The Eastern Orthodox churches don't define things as precisely as Roman Catholics. So Luther's retaining something there that the followers of Calvin and others could not find in the Bible. And that is that Jesus' human nature, where is it now? Where is the body, the physical body of Jesus now? If we were Lutherans, we could say, when we have the Lord's Supper, it's right here. But I believe that this same Jesus in Acts, when the angels, uh, when Jesus has ascended to heaven, and the angels say, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing into the heavens? This same Jesus that you have seen go into heaven shall return in like manner we believe that jesus the human jesus who is also god that his human body is in heaven right now and will remain there until he comes again for his church so the human body of jesus is in heaven right now it is not on earth It is in heaven. And so so Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, and Low Church of England people, and Methodists, all reject the idea that the body of Jesus is on earth now. He's in heaven, and he'll come from there again. So we reject the idea of the communicatio idiomatum, which means that the human nature of Jesus partakes of the attributes of his deity. Now, so that's one difference between Calvinists and Lutherans. So what did Calvin teach? First, we want to talk about Zwingli or the views attributed to Zwingli. And that is that that Jesus' death is symbolically portrayed as a memorial in the Lord's Supper. But that's all it is. It is a memorial, and only a memorial. What does it mean that it's a memorial? Well, we all believe it's a memorial. Roman Catholics believe it's a memorial. Eastern Orthodox believe it. Lutherans believe it, and so on. But Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans... And Calvinists believe that it's more than a memorial. It's more than a memorial. And so if you think back to my sermon a week ago Sunday, what you have there is that that the Holy Spirit, who has seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in our spirits, lifts us up where Jesus is in heaven. And feeds us with Christ mysteriously we call that the spiritual presence of Christ you should use the word spiritual with a capital S because it relates to the Holy Spirit not to a figure of speech a figure we sometimes use the word spiritual say well that's a figure of speech that's a metaphor no it is, it is not that. It, it points to two things. The, our understanding, low church Anglican's understanding, Congregationalist understanding, and the Methodists who come out of the Church of England, the low church party of the Church of England, all believe that the Holy Spirit, who is clearly present on earth... Has already seated us in heavenly places in Christ, and He Himself, in a way that is mysterious and impossible to define, feeds us with Christ Himself, the whole Christ, but not in a kind of way. So we believe it is a memorial, but we believe it's more than a memorial, and because the Holy Spirit is present taking the Lord's Supper serious business. That's why when you read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, some are weak, some are sick, and some have died because they profaned the table of the Lord. How'd they do it? Well, they came holding on to sin. And we cannot hold on to sin. We've got to let go of sin. doesn't make any difference what you've done. You could have committed first-degree murder yesterday morning. And you come to church today to take the Lord's Supper. Can you take it? If you're heartily sorry for your sins, and you resolve in your heart, by God's grace, to leave that sin, you should take the Lord's Supper. And there there was this show, and we started watching it because we didn't have our streaming when we were staying with our grandsons, which we did two weeks in a row And there was a show on Jeffrey Dahmer. And we eventually turned it off. I couldn't (coughs) take it. But anyhow... (laughs) Oh, yeah. But the story is that he was an atheist. And that along the way, when he got into prison, he committed his life to Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Could Jeffrey Dahmer, a cannibal... And a very violent pervert, could Jeffrey Dahmer, would I, Bob, were I a chaplain in a prison, would I would I baptize Jeffrey Dahmer and would I administer the Lord's Supper to him? And the answer to that question is yes. Isn't he the one that he wanted to meet with James Dobson? No, that is that is um, Ted Bundy. Okay, Bundy. Ted. Yeah. yeah, Ted Bundy was not a cannibal, no. but he was boy, he was much more dangerous than Jeffrey Dahmer because Ted Bundy is the kind of guy you would be happy to have over your house for a bridge party, uh, date your daughter, uh, maybe be a son-in-law because he was very polite. He had great manners and all of these things. And he described, and this is a clear picture of demon possession because demon possession in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that at every moment in time a person is under such absolute control of a demon. But in the case of Ted Bundy, he's going along just a normal, nice guy, and all of a sudden he'd get this thought. And he would look at a woman, and he would choose her, and he would begin, and part of its game was to stalk her. And so he's, he's doing all his planning, and he eventually kills her. And so, uh, so Ted Bundy was very dangerous. The way he described it to Dobson, really made me, uh, it's as clear an indication of a demon-possessed man as you possibly could find. Could Ted Bundy have repented of his sins and, and be admitted to the church, be baptized and admitted to the Lord's Supper? Yes. If we don't understand that, we don't understand grace. Grace says to all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked, bad, and depraved it is, there's, there's room at the cross for you. And so, again, uh, you've, got, you've got Ted Bundy, a man who experienced demon possession coming on him in waves, and then only after he had fulfilled it was he back to his normal self. Whereas Jeffrey Dahmer... Uh, had a lot of issues growing up and became increasingly perverted and, and then begins to be a cannibal. Gracious sakes. But again, the Lord's Supper. So going back, the Lord's Supper is a memorial, but the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. Christ is really present as we observe this ordinance, a sealing ordinance, But he's present in a mysterious way by the power of the Holy Spirit, but sufficiently present that we should not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. And apparently, uh, in the church in Corinth, people were drinking a, a lot of the communion wine. And it's one reason why there is a tendency, if you're a Roman Catholic priest, because of their belief That that is not wine anymore. Every single drop has got to be consumed and then carefully wiped out. And then that's washed in a special sink because it's the actual literal blood of Jesus. And so if you're doing eight masses on Sunday morning and you haven't and you've been fasting in order to take this, by the time the last mass is done. You is a mess. <laughs> so, you know, and that's why in the Middle Ages when people were not scholarly, even your priests, they're getting near the end and they've had about eight, eight cups. Hocus pocus. <laughs> so anyhow, then, then there's another difference with Luther and Calvin. And that is the Lutheran view of baptism. And I, I'm going to wrap this up in a sec. The Lutheran view of baptism is is baptismal regeneration. What does that mean? It means that when you're baptized, you are born again. I remember having a conversation. I had a a close relationship with a Roman Catholic bishop of Alexandria, and uh, we worked together on a Franklin Graham crusade. And I'm talking to him, and I use the phrase, nominal Catholic. Now if I use the phrase nominal Presbyterian, you know what I mean. The Presbyterian's a name only. They got the name on the roll, but they don't go to church at all anymore. They're nominal Presbyterians, nominal Baptists. They were they walked the aisle, they were baptized, they joined the church, shook the preacher's hand, but we ain't seen them in 30 years. They're nominal Baptists. But the bishop said to me, his name was Sam Jacobs, he's still alive. Sam Jacobs said to me, Bob, there are no nominal Catholics. Brain's going, the little gray cells. You know what, what, wait a minute. And then I realized, everyone who is baptized with water in the Roman Catholic Church, with the proper phrases being said, Everyone who is baptized is a Roman Catholic and remains a Roman Catholic unless that person is excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. So there are no nominal Catholics because, again, it's, it's a focus on ordinances and rituals. Now, so, so Luther taught baptismal regeneration. What do low-church Anglicans, Presbyterians... Congregationalists and Methodists believe. We believe that the Holy Spirit may cause someone to be born again when he's baptized. Or it may be a seal of something that might happen 20 years later. In other words, we teach that regeneration or the new birth is not tied to the moment of baptism. And this is a very important truth. So you cannot say of any baptized person, this person's born again. As my friend Sam Jacobs would have said, this person is is a Catholic. He's born again because baptismal waters cause you to be born again. So Presbyterians reject baptismal regeneration in two ways. First of all, only... Those who will eventually embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are born again. And they're not necessarily born again at the moment of water baptism. This is very important. Now, I have friends who say they're Presbyterians, but who are really Lutherans. And they should be honest and join the Lutheran Church because they're not Presbyterians. And the point is that water baptism is something God uses to save someone. But it doesn't save everyone. It only saves those who eventually repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ. It's a covenant. Ma'am? It might be a covenant. Yes. It's election. Yeah, it's you're making covenant. This is the critical thing right here. Acts two forty two, and 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 that's this. This is by the way next to the favorite verse of the anti-Trinitarian United Pentecostals, who believe that you have to be immersed in the name of Jesus in order to go to heaven. And so they you'll see billboards. I live uh, in the community with the largest. United Pentecostal Church, I believe in the country. At least it was at one time. And so you'll see billboards all over that say Acts 239, Acts 239. And uh, so they like this verse. Here it is. And um, Acts 238, I'm sorry, Acts 238. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's their favorite verse. My favorite verse comes right after it. He says, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. But notice that last clause is the qualifier that qualifies the entire thing. What is the qualifier that qualifies the entire thing? Acts 2.39. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And so what that means is that it's only those who experience the calling of the Spirit who will ever truly repent of their sins, come to Jesus and be saved. And this is a promise to us and our children. But does it mean that our children are going to be saved automatically? No. I can say this, and Sandy's in my case. We still plead with God for our children and children-in-law and grandchildren and grandchildren-in-law. Because all of them have been baptized with water. But we, we want to see evidence in them. That they have a true relationship with Jesus. Now, that true relationship with Jesus is like this I'm still married to Sandy. If I put this on my dead dog, all our dogs are dead now and buried in our backyard. If I put this on my dead dog, he does not become married to Sandy. This wedding ring is like the waters of baptism. It is an outward sign of an inward reality. And it also means that somebody might put on a a wedding band to fool people that he or she is married when they really are not. And it also is true that if you observe people, oftentimes you will see something like and it's not as pronounced as it used to be after I had to have Moe's surgery for a cancer, a squamous cell cancer here. But for years, it was hard to remove my wedding ring. And I had to have it enlarged. And you could tell that I had a wedding ring. It's very clear. And you'll find people go to bars, and sometimes they remove their wedding rings. My point is this. This is like the waters of baptism. It is an outward sign of an inward grace. That inward grace is the new birth. Does God use the waters of baptism to save us? Yes. But not in such a way that everyone who's baptized is saved. Nor is it true that if a person does not get baptized, that he's automatically going to hell. So the thing I'm going to stress and what I believe is very important for evangelical unity, that is unity with all other Christians who believe the gospel is this. As long as you believe that not everybody that's baptized with water is born again, and as long as you believe that a person can be born again and go to heaven without the waters of baptism, I'm okay with you. That doesn't mean you necessarily should be a Presbyterian minister, Uh, but that's basic teaching. So Luther taught baptismal regeneration. Calvin taught that baptism was a pledge of 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 a seed of faith. And you had at least three views at the Westminster Assembly. Calvin's view, which was it was a seed of faith that was planted in baptism in the elect. Then you had the view of Cornelius Burgess at the Westminster Assembly, who said, ordinarily, uh, elect infants are born again at the moment of baptism. And then you had the view of Archbishop Usher that's similar to many evangelicals today, which is that it is a pledge to a future regeneration. So those are the differences in Luther And Calvin, with respect to the Lord's Supper, with respect to baptism. And um, Luther was absolutely every bit as much a predestinarian as Calvin. Uh, His disciple, Philip Melanchthon, uh, toned down some of the predestinarian teaching of Luther. And so, anyhow... As I look at church history, and I close with this so we can have a season of prayer, um, I think it's important that we strive to have unity with all Christians. And as I say that, that doesn't mean that I can have an absolute unity with every Christian. For example, my friend Sam Jacobs, who was the bishop of the Diocese of Alexandria Shreveport, Uh, a a decade and a half ago, uh, Roman Catholic. I have no doubt that Sam knew and loved Jesus. He described for me when Sandy and I took him to supper in the middle of a scandal, he had had a priest who had molested a child and maybe more. And he said, I held him in my arms all night, prayed with him and wept over him. Sam Jacobs had a pastor's heart, even for someone who had violated a child. How far does grace go? Sam had a pastor's heart. Sam loved Jesus. Sam loved people. Can I walk in unity with him? Well, of course. How far? Well, he and I could not do the Lord's Supper together because I don't believe in that hocus pocus. (laughs) Nor can I take communion in the Roman Catholic Church. None of us here can take communion in the Roman Catholic Church because they do not allow it. They practice absolutely close communion. You have to be baptized in the Roman Catholic Church and you have to have been to to confession and and not, not take communion with a mortal sin unconfessed which is why what Pope Francis did with first year of COVID is just bizarre. Uh, He released Catholics from that obligation. So he and I couldn't do, we couldn't do church missionary work. But I will tell you a strange story as I close. When I was smuggling Bibles into Beijing, China, in 1981, in May of 1981, um, one of the people who was with us was a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Father Michael Manning. Michael Manning had a TV show that was, was on Eternal Word, uh, is it, whatever it is, the, the Roman Catholic Network. And he's there with me. And he, um, he was involved in the Bible smuggling operation uh, along with us. And he took pictures and some videos, which he later showed. And we went to Mass in the cathedral in Beijing, China, together. And he said some things to me. He said, Bob, this is so amazing. He said, this Mass is pre-Vatican II. He said, the priest is speaking in Latin. The priest is facing the altar, not the people. He said, this is really amazing. So the, the Chinese communist controlled the Roman Catholic Church in China... And they were not allowed to follow the Pope and, and, the, and, and what happened to Catholicism during Vatican II. So anyhow, I think that's an interesting story. Do I believe that Michael Manning was a true Christian? Yes, I really do. He prayed with us before we smuggled the Bibles. We, the night before we prayed, and he said, if you, if you don't have peace about smuggling these Bibles, please do not accept them. So six of the seven of us, including Father Manning and yours truly, um, took Bibles, 40 Bibles each, in our suitcases. We land in Beijing, China. Uh, We did not get searched, but one member of our group has his luggage searched. And I used to have a ventriloquist dummy. I said, don't look now. But it looks like Stephen is in trouble. You need a cross you know. And so, anyhow, he didn't have any Bibles. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that we can walk in unity as far as we possibly can with all, all those who name the name of Jesus. Lord, I could be uh, a pastor in a low church Anglican congregation a congregational church, a Presbyterian church. Lord, I, I happen to believe that Presbyterianism is the most consistently biblical of, of all the churches. But Lord, I pray that I will never have a sectarian, cultic view of my church. Bless us, Lord, as we, as we break and then pray in Jesus' name. Amen.